Johan, that was awesome. I haven't heard you play like that in years, and I was blown away. I, I guess I've never sat that close to your horn. For, for those of you who have children and you want them in a, a music program, both our music director and our saxophonist are in charge of our music program here at Northwest. So that was an awesome commercial this morning. They are very gifted. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we come first to praise you, to acknowledge your greatness. For many of us, Lord, this is the first moment we've been silent before you this week. Lord, Sunday is the beginning of the week, and what better way to start it off than by acknowledging that our God reigns. The past week was full of sin and destruction and death. And certainly this week will have sufficient evil. But our God reigns. Lord, you are the God who is the great I am. The gods of Egypt shut up their mouths before the one who speaks. Do you need temples to dwell in when the universe is your throne and the earth is your footstool? What can we give you by our hands that is not already yours? You are a great God, a living and active God. And when this week becomes difficult, remind us that you still reign, that you are in control, and that all things that happen for those who love you happen for their good. You, Lord, have not left us in this dark world to be more darkness, but have given us the light of your Holy Spirit to be salt and to light to this world and to sing your praises that you, God, reign, that no other God reigns, but you reign. You live. We don't worship a God made of precious metals and stones, but a God who makes the precious metals and stones. A God who says, let there be light and light before it ever was. Bows to your powerful word. God, you are high and lifted up. But what a mystery that you, Lord God, would leave your throne and become a man and that you would dwell with us in the person of your son. You, Lord Jesus, came to this earth to start your kingdom here on earth 
and to make for yourself a people of your kingdom, a people of your choosing. And we, Lord, those who confess Jesus, those who are contrite of heart, are your citizens of your kingdom. Tell us, Lord, from your word what you would have us do. And let us obey. Create in us a new spirit. Remind us that when we received you, we crucified the old man and that the old man is dead. The old man who was bound by sin has been freed to be a slave to righteousness. Lord, make us citizens of your kingdom by giving us your spirit. God, we praise you in Jesus. We praise you. No other name can we praise you other than in Jesus' name. Lord, our world is hurting. I pray that you would keep our world from evil. Begin the revival of this world in this country and begin the revival of this country in this city and begin the revival of this world and in this country and in this city at this church by our people living like kingdom people. Living like you, Jesus, have made us to live. Let every one of us here who confesses to be a citizen of the kingdom of God feel the weight of the responsibility of the gracious gift that they have received in Christ Jesus that you have called us to be citizens of a new kingdom and to look differently from the world, to be salt and light. Lord, begin the revival here by beginning the revival in our personal lives. Lord, each and every one of us must begin the revival in our personal lives. Revive this church. Lord, we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. We're just going to do a little review. We're currently looking at the topic of the Beatitudes. A beatitude is just a, a blessing. That's all it means. It's an English word for the word blessing. It, it actually is a genre of literature, and it existed even before Jesus first gave us the beatitudes. There were beatitudes in, in ancient Greece, and those beatitudes would say this is a blessing. You are blessed if you have this spirit or if you have this thing. And so we're looking at these Beatitudes, and we see that the, the Beatitude just means a blessing for having a certain spirit. But the, the, the difference between the Beatitudes of the Bible and the Beatitudes of the Greeks and the Beatitudes of the modern-day world is that God defines the character traits of his people for us. This list is not a generic list of character traits that the world has or that non-believers should have, but rather a list of traits that every believer should have. And not just one. We don't go through the Beatitudes and choose the ones we want. We don't choose, I'll take poor of spirit, but neglect suffering for righteousness' sake. 
but rather these Beatitudes are like spokes on a wheel, all attached to a central truth. Just like spokes on a wheel turn all at the same time, but they turn on the, on the same access point. And that central truth is this. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. If you are in Christ, the old has passed away and the new has come. And so Jesus is going to give us, in the beginning on the Sermon on the Mount, he is going to give us a list of character traits that characterize the people of God. And every last one of those character traits is to be a part of the Christian's life. So these beatitudes are kingdom blessings. Beatitude just means blessing and blessing for those who are in the kingdom of God. They are all equal to the spirit of what it means to be a Christian. But for our present passage this morning, Matthew 5, 4, which says this. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is important that we define the word mourning within its context. There, there is no more important activity in all Bible reading than to define our terms according to their context. The context is the setting in which the word occurs. And so the Greek word, if you did a, a word study on the word mourning, you would find that the word mourning just means mourning. It means it's a generic word. There's, there's no special term here. But within the context, we have to learn what this mourning is and how this mourning is a unique type of mourning and how it is different from the general sense of bereavement. So this morning I want to look at this passage, Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning here does not mean bereavement. It doesn't mean that this is a general statement to all people who mourn over the loss of a loved one or the loss of a thing. Right? Sometimes when people are suffering or they're mourning the loss of a loved one, Christians might remember this beatitude and say, well, blessed are you because you're mourning. And since you're mourning, Jesus, Jesus blesses you because you will be comforted. But I want to take that generic sense of mourning and I want to explain why that's not exactly what this passage means. Mourning here does not mean those who mourn in bereavement over the loss of a thing, but rather it means those who mourn the loss of their innocent, as John Stott notes. It is those who mourn the loss of their righteousness, those who mourn the loss of their self-respect. Another word you might write in your Bibles here is the word contrition or the word contrite. This mourning is a sorrow for sin, not a sorrow for loss. And it works here. Look at, look at the context really quickly, if you would, at verses 
uh, 3 and then verses all the way through 14. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So mourning cannot simply mean mourning for bereavement. It is mourning for our spiritual poverty before God, mourning over our sin. Jesus is introducing a, a new teaching, a religion that begins in contrition of heart. The Christian faith is a religion that begins in repentance. It is a faith that begins by saying, I can't do what the holy God requires. I am unworthy. So the mourning that we're looking for here is contrition of heart. Those who loss over or who mourn over the loss of their righteousness, the loss of their holiness before God. I want to explain it like this then this morning. This is the central point if we miss everything, but, but let's, let's get this one point this morning, and it's this, that contrition is different than confession. Contrition is different than confession. Many of us have staked our lives on that confession that we made. And we have never really asked ourselves, has there been contrition of heart? Are we really genuinely remorseful and repentant of our sins? For John, the way that we know this is that we obey God. That we are constantly confessing our sins. That there is a marked difference in our behavior because we are truly and genuinely sorry that we have offended an almighty and holy and righteous God. So confession can be one thing. But God looks for contrition in the heart of his people. Let me demonstrate that to you this morning. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 51, 1 through 17. You can mark that. We're going to go to Psalm 51. We're also going to look at 1 Samuel 15, 24. So we're going to first look at 1 Samuel 15, 24 through 25 and 30, verse 30. There are two great kings of Israel. We know of the first king of Israel, and his name is Saul, King Saul. And we know of the greatest king of Israel, save that for Jesus Christ, and his name is King David. In fact, the very gospel of Matthew begins by claiming this is the genealogy of the son of David. This is the greatest king. 2 Samuel in verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 14, prophesies that the Messiah would come through this great king's line. But I want to take for just a moment these two unique men and these two unique situations and ask the question, is it possible to confess without being contrite? Again, contrition is that it is that sense of, of 
absolute poverty, that sense of brokenness over our sin, that we are genuinely brokenhearted about what we have done to God. This is what contrition is. And I want to ask the question, is it possible to confess and not be contrite? Look with me, if you would, at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 24 through 25. At this point, here's what's happened in our story. Saul was commanded to go out and wipe, completely wipe off the face of the earth, the Amalekites. Completely to wipe them out. He was to save no one, no thing, no child, no woman. No animal, no spoil, no gold, no precious metals, everything wiped out. And Saul had another idea. What Saul thought would be a good idea was that he would hold back some of the possessions for himself and use that to honor God with. So God says, this is what I want you to do by the, the mouth of the prophet Samuel. And Saul does otherwise. You, you might even say, and we don't know, but you, you could even say, let's just, let's just take it at face value. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that King Saul here has good intentions. But what are good intentions to God? God cares not about your good intentions, only about your obedience. So Saul has kept a portion, and Samuel even asked him in verse 22, has the Lord as great delight, he was going to use these animals that he had collected to be a sacrifice for God, says Saul. But listen to the question in verse 22 that, that Samuel asked, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He would rather you obey than you try and take your good ideas and good intentions about religion. He wants to know that you know this one truth, that he knows more, infinitely more, and loves and can be trusted infinitely more than even your best intentions. So much so that even when you think that you know better than God and you think this is what is moral and right and good, that you are more willing to say, God... I'll trust you, I'll do this instead of what I think is right. But Saul didn't do that. Look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. This has a similar story in Eden. When Adam is made aware of his sin by God, here Saul made aware of his sin by God through the prophet Samuel, he blames someone else. It sounds like he's confessing, and indeed he has. In verse 23, I have sinned. But he gives a caveat. I was afraid of the people. In verse 30, he tries to clarify this. And he says this. Then he said, I have sinned. This is Saul again. I have sinned. He's confessing. 
Yet honor me now before the elders, my people, and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. The whole motivation for Saul's confession is to impress the elders of Israel. It's to impress men. His confession is disingenuous. He has confessed, he has gone through the motions of, of, what it, of what we assume is true religion by confessing, but there's really no broken heart over his sin. And consider his sin now in light of the sin of David. Saul's sin was that he offered a sacrifice and kept back what the Lord told him to destroy in fact, the Lord had given him a commandment, go and kill, and he didn't do it. And David was told, thou shalt not murder, and he did it. Now, now, if you weigh these, just in any moral man's conscience, if you weigh these, disobeying God versus uh, immorality, possibly rape of Bathsheba, lust of Bathsheba, adultery with Bathsheba, Lies to her husband, deceit, even an orchestrated murder of her husband. And if you weigh those two together, you say, clearly, David is worse of a man than Saul. Clearly. How is it then that the Bible could say that David is a man after God's own heart? It's because the difference between these two men is a heart and an attitude of contrition. God dwells with those who are of a contrite and lowly spirit. If you think this morning that you have earned God's favor, that, that you're going you're gonna to impress God by your sacrifice or by how good you are, know this, you are not blessed. Because our beatitude this morning says, blessed are those who do what? Impress God with their sacrifices and their confession? No, those who mourn. You are blessed if you mourn. Uh, one commentator said, if you, if you want to prove the point, the strangeness of this, of this teaching, you could say it literally says, happy are those who are unhappy. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. If you look at the beginning, this is part of the passage. At the beginning, it says, To the core master, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That means after he had committed adultery and all of his acts. Evil and wicked acts. Listen to his heart. Have mercy on me, O oh God, according to your steadfast love. I want you to see the difference between Saul's empty confession 
and, and, and his attempt to impress God in men versus a heart that really knows what I have done has offended a holy God who loves me and wants only what's best for me. And what I have done is so utterly wicked that I'm brokenhearted that I would do that to you, God. This is a different heart. The acts look similar, but the heart is so much different, and God looks at the heart. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. You know, one thing about contrition is that it begins by looking at God and saying, I can't do what you require. You have to do everything for me. I've made a mess, and i got to go to God and say, clean up this mess. It's like a children to their parent. They go and they make the mess, and then they go to their parent, and they say, I don't want to clean it up. But aren't we the children of God? You must go to your parent and say, I can't clean it up. This mess is too big for me to clean up. My little hands of, of immorality and unrighteousness are too small to pick up the weighty deeds of my sin and say, here, it's better now. Only God can do this. For I know my transgressions. David says, I know their weight. And my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. For Saul, he wanted to impress the Israelites. He said, Samuel, take me before the elders. Let's, let's make this look right in front of all the people. But for David, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in your truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me then with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This is a man whose heart is broken before God. You know the difference between these two? It's a difference between confession and contrition. David repents and receives forgiveness, but Saul confesses and loses the entire kingdom. God is not impressed with your mere heartless confession. God wants a contrite heart. Look at how the psalm concludes in verse 16. For you will not, you, you might even say that David has in mind the iniquity of Saul at this point. For you will not delight in sacrifice. Saul brought sacrifices to God. Beautiful and perfect sacrifices. Animals without blemish. And he brought them to God, but he disobeyed. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. David's saying, 
I'll do what you want. Because I'm after your heart, God. I'm not after anything but your heart. I want you. I don't want the, the approval of men. I don't want the approval of my church. I don't want the approval of my peers. I don't want the approval of my boss. I don't want my, the approval of the bartender. I don't want the approval of the boys. I don't want the approval of the girls. I want your heart. And if you wanted this, if you wanted sacrifice, I'd give you that. Because that's what you want, and I want to give you what you want. That's the heart. And what does he say in verse 17? You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, though, are what? A broken spirit. Certainly, Jesus had in mind Psalm 51, 17, when he said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Certainly, Jesus had this in mind. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So I ask you then this morning, are you contrite of heart? Are you broken up over your sin? Have, have you sat down and personalized your acts? This is not mere moralizing. This is a personal offense. You have offended another person. You have broken the heart, not only of another person, but of the almighty, most merciful and loving God. You have sinned. When Jesus looked upon the people of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 22, it says that he looked at the city and he began to weep and prayed, would that they would repent. Jesus was not only broken up, and, and so many times we're, we need to not only just be broken up about our sins, but we need to be broken up about the sins of the world. It should break your heart that this world is running fast like an uncontrollable train downhill to its sudden and certain death. It should break your heart. We should not laugh. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 6, there is a woe, a curse upon this that goes with the blessed are those who are mourning. There's a curse upon those who laugh now. We should be mourning We have sinned and offended God. And if that does not grasp you and grip you this morning, pray that God will give you a spirit of contrition. Because only God can give you a spirit of contrition. Look at Psalm 51.10. Psalm 51.10. What does David say? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So David has sinned, and here's what he knows. That if he is to have any deliverance for this broken heart, his mourning, if he is to have any kind of deliverance from his sin, it's going to begin by this appeal. God, do in me what I can't do for myself. Create in me. A clean heart, oh God. 
It's your job, God. And you renew a right spirit within me. Do you desire for God to create a clean heart in you? Do you desire for God to renew you and your spirit again? Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Do you desire in the midst of your mourning, in the midst of your heartbrokenness over sin, do you desire that God would give you his very Holy Spirit? That he would pour it out on you? Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Do you desire that the Lord would uphold you with a willing spirit? That the next time sin comes, that you would be willing to serve God? That you would be willing to obey him? That you would be willing to give him everything of your being? Do you desire for that? Do you desire this morning to be delivered, verse 14, from your guilt and for God to be the God of your salvation? Do you desire in your mourning that God would deliver you from this guilt of your wickedness? The man who speaks is a murderer quite possibly a rapist, a terrible criminal. And Nathan says of David, when David confessed his sins, Nathan says of David, the Lord has forgiven you. How great is our God. If you've got something in your life that you believe is unforgivable, it's not. It is not. You might feel broken up. Let the Holy Spirit then break you some more to the point where you feel like David felt, Lord, you have to renew in me and give me everything that I can't give to myself. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. Look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. You know, we've got many comforts in this life. We think that we have comforts in a nice automobile or in a nice house. But there is no comfort better than the comfort of knowing that your sins are forever forgiven. That nothing in this life, heights and depths, life and death, poverty and wealth, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Hebrews 10, 8 through 17. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. How? Listen to what Jesus has done. When he said above, 
This is Jesus. Through the mouth of the prophet David, David is prophesying that Jesus will do the comforting. You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. For these have been afforded or offered according to the law. But then Jesus added, Behold, what? I have come to do your will. You see, Jesus does away with the first, the, the law and the offerings to establish the second, the fulfillment, the perfect fulfillment of God's law. And by that, well, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How? Through the body of Jesus Christ. Why can no other religion save you? Because no other religion has the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You are in a serious predicament this morning. You have offended not only a merciful God, but a just God, and he's going to get justice. You either get it through Jesus or you get it through an eternity in hell. But God will get justice. But he offers to you this comfort for your mourning. And this comfort is the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, which was offered once and for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me give you the comfort for your mourning over sin this morning. Even the believer who mourns over their sin now, let me give you the comfort. God has perfected you in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Once and for all. Done. Past sins present sins, future sins, God has perfected you in Christ Jesus. Done. That's your comfort. Every guilt you have over sin, say this, I am perfect in Jesus Christ. The devil would have you under the accusation of your sins, but God would deliver you through his son, God has perfected you. But not only that, it says God has perfected for all time what? Who? Those who are being sanctified. You say, how can I be a believer and still sin? Because you are not glorified yet. You are being sanctified. You are growing in righteousness. The comfort that you should have this morning, believer, 
is the comfort of the works that God has given you to do from before the foundation of the earth in this knowledge that none of those works save you, but those works are the product of your salvation in Christ Jesus. Here's the comfort. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying this, this is the covenant that I will make with them. We have a new covenant. After those days, declares the Lord, the days of Jesus, the days when he has offered it, here is the covenant that God offers to every one of you this morning that are within earshot of my voice. Here's the covenant that God offers you. For your mourning, I will put my laws on your hearts. And I will write them on your minds. And I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I ask you this this morning. Do you want comfort? Do you want the comfort that only God can give you this morning? If you do, it begins by the simple confession. God, forgive me of all my sins by the name and by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.